Section 13 of Mornings at Bow Street. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Two Authors A man of six feet in height, of seedy exterior, and most melancholious physiognomy, principal contributor of Baudry and Balderdash to the Rambler's Magazine, sixpence a sheet translator of the adventures of Chevalier Faublas, etc 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 was brought up in custody to show cause why he should not be prosecuted for obtaining money under false pretenses from one mr robert wedderburn tailor and breeches maker field preacher radical reformer romance writer circulatory librarian an ambulatory dealer in drugs deism and demoralization in general Mr. Robert Wedderburn, or Robertus Wedderburn, as he delighteth to designate himself, is a man of color, something of the color of a toad's back, plump and puffy as a porpoise, and the magnitude of his caput makes it manifest that nature cut him out for a counselor, had not the destinies decreed that he should cut out cloth. He therefore became a tailor and flourished, his shears but age and fatty infirmity at length unfitted him for the operative department of his profession. His pack would no longer bend to the board. His legs refused to let him cross them as he was wont to do. His eyes declined seeing a needle unless it was close to his nose, and though he got spectacles of all sorts and let go his braces to their utmost limits, he could not manage it anyhow, and so, since he could no longer sew, he joined the radicals of the day, and, from mending breeches, took to mending the state. His doings in this way made some noise in the world. He it was who had the honor of first inoculating the invincible Carlyle with pure deism. He it was who suffered pains, penalties, prosecutions, and imprisonments, for his too liberal promulgation of too liberal politico-theological preachings, and he it will be that will have a place in the list of patriot martyrs of the nineteenth century, if a list of them should ever be published, shelved with the rest of the radicals, he turned his thoughts to literature. Literature brought him acquainted with the prisoner, his acquaintance with the prisoner brought the prisoner to the bar of his office, and that brings us to the immediate matter at issue. It appeared by the evidence that Mr. Robertus Wedderburn, being a man, as he himself said, fruitful in imagination, but no great scholar, was in the habit of cutting out pretty little sixpenny romances and employing the prisoner to touch them up grammatically, this caused a kind of literary intercourse between them, and at one of their interviews lately, on the subject of a new romance, to be called Beatrice, or The Bleeding Beauty, the prisoner tendered a pawnbroker's ticket to Mr. Robertus Wedderburn, requesting him to buy it. This ticket purported to be a pledging of thirteen volumes of new novels for the trifling sum of ten shillings and Mr. Robertus Wedderburn willingly undertook to purchase it for three shillings, wisely considering that these thirteen volumes would be a handsome addition to his little circulating library, 
and that at a shilling apiece they were certainly dog-cheap. He therefore paid the prisoner the three shillings, and as soon as he could raise the money, he went to the pawnbrokers to redeem the books, when, to his other astonishment, he found instead of thirteen, there were only three, that the prisoner had taken the liberty of placing a one before the three on the thicket, thereby converting three into thirteen, that the three books were thus pledged for their full value, and that Mr. Robertus Wedderburn was, of course, bamboozled of his blunt, in the vulgar, cheated of his money. The magistrate, having listened with great patience to the premises, asked the prisoner what he had to say for himself, and, as he only played with his hat-band in reply, he was remanded until the evening, in order that the pawnbroker might attend. In the evening he was again placed at the bar, but there was no pawnbroker in attendance, and Mr. Wedderburn begged leave to withdraw the prosecution, he having been satisfied by the bounty of the prisoner's patron. The magistrate then commented severely on the conduct of all the parties, and reluctantly consented to the prisoner's discharge. A BOLD STROKE FOR A SUPPER A pair of showy young men, exquisitely attired, with their exquisite attire cased in street mud, and their crops, a la titus, filled with bits of straw, were brought up from one of the lower apartments, commonly called the Black Hole, in Covent Garden Watchhouse, where they had passed the night in doleful durance, merely because their appetites were in better order than their finances, or, in plain terms, because they had eaten more supper than they could pay for. They gave their names John Bright and Henry Walsh, gents, the former of Queen Square, and the latter of blank. Nowhere in particular, the following is the story of the little adventure which brought them under the surveillance of the police. On Sunday night these gallants went into the Imperial Hotel Piazza, Covent Garden, and asked if Mr. Kekski was there. They were told that he was not, at which they expressed much surprise. They then ordered a right jolly supper, and when it was ready they ate it up, washing it down with three bottles of prime old port. Nevertheless, they frequently cast an anxious eye towards the door, and talked from time to time of the unaccountable absence of Mr. Kekski. At length they became what is classically called Bacchi Plenus, and the landlord thought it was then time to send up the bill. He sent it up, accordingly, but they tossed it in their waiter's face, and ordered him to send up the landlord. Mr. Joy, Mr. Joy obeyed their summons, and demanded to know their pleasure. Joy, my hearty, you must put up this to Kekski. He invited us, and by God he shall pay, was the jovial reply. Upon my word, gentlemen, this is too bad. Mr. Kekski has not been here these many weeks. You are utter strangers to me, and I cannot think of letting you go without paying, replied Mr. Joy. You can't. Then I'll tell you what, my old boy, we shall tip you the double and bolt. By all that's comical, retorted one of the bucks, 
this kind of phraseology put their gentility quite out of the question with mr joy and without further ceremony he ordered one of his waiters to call in a watchman this was a measure the supper-eaters had not calculated upon and they became indignantly anxious to put their threat of tipping him the double into immediate practice but mr joy and his waiters opposed their retreat upon which they threatened to kick mr joy downstairs and throw his waiters out of the window and they had actually commenced proceedings in his way when the watchman made his appearance and took them in charge they now moderated their choler a little and proposed that somebody should accompany them home where they would pay the bill this was acceded to on the part of mr joy and an extra watchman agreed to accompany them with one of the waiters for that purpose but they had scarcely left the hotel before they suddenly bolted in different directions and would inevitably have tipped their pursuers the double at last had it not been for the rattles of the watchman as it was one of them was caught as he was scampering up bow street and the other was found ingloriously concealed among the sheds in the market farther parley was not attempted on either side they were forthwith conveyed to the watch-house and there they conducted themselves so obstropolously that the constable of the night found it necessary to have them put down below instead of letting them sit by the fire like gentlemen this was the substance of the evidence for the prosecution and the muddy watch-worn defendants were asked by the magistrates that they had to say to it they replied that they were actually invited to supper at the hotel by their friend mr Kaksky, who was very well known to the landlord and they fully expected he would have come in during the supper or otherwise they would not have ordered the supper they had however offered the landlord their address and had assured him he should be paid in the morning then pay it now said the magistrate the morning is arrived the defendants looked blank and did not offer to pay mr joy observed that their story about mr Kekski was a mere absurdity as that gentleman was out of town he is not out of town said one of the supper-eaters for i saw him yesterday afternoon the fact is your worship he is in the king's bench prison said mr joy that is false sir he is not exclaimed the supper-eater where is he then said his worship why sir he is in the rules replied the supper-eater every soul in the office laughed at this nice distinction and the magistrate cut the matter short by telling mr joy he could not detain the gentlemen for the amount of their supper as it was a simple contract debt but he could hold them to bail for the assault they were accordingly ordered to find bail and not being prepared with any they were consigned to the attentions of the turnkey without any order for their breakfast cupboard love mr george pendergast the principal of a flue-feaking establishment or in ordinary phrase a master chimney-sweeper appeared upon a peace warrant issued at the instance of mr christopher williamson a painter not of pictures but posts and penthouses mr christopher williamson deposed that on a certain day named mr pendergast came into his apartments while he and mrs williamson were quietly taking their tea and crumpets and without any notice whatever knocked him off his chair 
what he was sitting on, and upon his telling Mr. Pendergast he thought such conduct very ungenteel, Mr. Pendergast told him to make himself easy, for he would come it again as often as he thought proper, from all which he verily believed that Mr. Pendergast intended to do him some grievous bodily harm, and therefore he prayed the interposition of the law. Mr. Pendergast, who stood before the bench, all suit without, and all gin and jollity within, very readily admitted the assault, adding, I think, your worship, it was time to give him a bit of a floor when I found my own wife in his cupboard. His worship said, If that was the facts, it certainly had a rather awkward appearance. But Mr. Williamson assured him Mrs. Pendergast only ran into the cupboard to avoid her husband's violence. And upon my honor, your worship, said he, there wasn't a morsel of crim, con, or anything of that air sort in the business at all. Mr. Pendergast admitted that he was not much afraid of Mr. Williamson, in the crim con line, and then went on to detail some other provocations he had received from him, particularly upon one occasion when Mr. Williamson persuaded him to take a ride on the Thames with him, and because he refused to lend him ten, chucked him overboard right into the river. Mr. Williamson denied this, and said Mr. Pendergast went overboard by accident, being rather top-heavyish. Mr. Pendergast was bound, in his own recognizance of twenty, to keep the pace towards all the king's subjects generally, and particularly so towards Mr. Christopher Williamson. Love in Chancery About the middle of the year, 1821, Horatio, a young apothecary of a certain city in the west, fell desperately in love with Drusilla, a wealthy damsel of that city, and the damsel returned his passion, though her father forbade her so to do. Then her father, in his anger, had her made a ward in chancery, and the Lord Chancellor issued an injunction prohibiting Horatio and Drusilla from becoming man and wife. Fathers and Lord Chancellors have cruel hearts, and these youthful lovers, instigated, no doubt, by that giant dwarf, Dan Cupid, and, moreover, not having the fear of the fleet before their eyes, eloped from their native city, with the intention of uniting themselves in defiance of the solemn injunction above mentioned. Now it appears that they contrived to elude the pursuit that was made after them by the father of Mr. Sela, and also by the officers of the court, who were anxious to serve the enamoured Horatio with a copy of the Lord Chancellor's injunction. In this predicament application was made to Bishop, indefatigable Bishop, as he is sometimes called, one of the principal bowstry officers, and he soon discovered their retreat. He found them, by some means or other best known to himself, in Myrtle Place, or Myrtle Grove, Hoxton. Perhaps it was the name of the place that led him thither, for where could a pair of lovers take refuge more appropriately than in a myrtle grove? And alas, that an officer's cruel eye should e'er go thither, such sweets to wither. But so it was, he did go, and of course he spoiled everything. Indeed, it would seem that he had no sooner made his appearance at the front door of the house, 
than love flew out at the window. The lady's love, at least. It was just about dusk in the evening, when Bishop, armed with full powers for the capture of the lady's person, proceeded in a hackney coach to the Myrtle Grove above mentioned, and alighting at a short distance from the house in which he believed the lovers were concealed. He left his coach in waiting, and walked in silence towards the house. Not the slightest sound was heard from within, but he had no sooner lifted the knocker than the door was opened by a young lady fully equipped for travelling. It was the fair fugitive, Drusilla herself. She was surrounded by trunks and bandboxes and bundles, and, as it afterwards appeared, she was at that very moment waiting the return of her beloved Horatio, who was gone to call a coach to convey them to some other place of refuge. Your name, I believe, miss, is Drusilla Blank, and you are lately arrived from Blank, said Bishop, with his accustomed courtesy. Oh, dear, no, sir, exclaimed the lady. I am Miss Jenkinsop, the daughter of the mistress of this house. Bishop remarked that he had no doubt she was telling a fib, and desired her to introduce him forthwith to her alleged mamma. No, she could not do this, as she was just going out. But if she would walk into the parlor, her mamma would come to him presently. Bishop was not to be had in this way, and so, taking the young lady by the hand, he led her into the parlor, and, having rang the bell, the mistress of the house shortly appeared, who disclaimed all relationship to the young lady and declared she knew no more of her than that she was the strange young lady who came to her house with a strange young gentleman a day or two ago and hired her apartments for a week the cruel officer now told drusilla his business and she wept for at least a minute and a half but she no longer denied that she was the identical drusilla who ran away from blank with horatio and wiping away her tears she put her handkerchief in her reticule declared she was glad she was caught and should be very happy to return to her friends if she was but sure the lord chancellor would do nothing to her bishop told her he had no doubt she would be very kindly received both by the lord chancellor and her father and offering her his hand she tripped lightly to the couch he had there in waiting for her the luggage was then put into the coach and it was just about to drive off when another coach drove up and out jumped horatio oh sir exclaimed the landlady who was still standing at the door oh sir they had taken away the lady who who has taken her demanded the astonished lover why i have replied bishop ordering the coachman to drive on crack went the whip and away went the horses with the coach behind them but who can paint Horatio as he stood? Speechless and fixed in all the death of woe, he did not stand many seconds, however, but ran after the coach like a greyhound, jumped up behind it, and peeping in at the window, called mournfully upon Drusilla. Drusilla, my angel, where are you going? His angel sat snugly in the corner of the carriage, and made no reply. But Bishop, looking out at the opposite window, said, come come young chap don't be rude or i shall be under the necessity of taking you somewhere get down from the coach instantly or i'll take you into custody 
Horatio took the hint and jumped down, but like a true knight he continued to follow, even on foot, panting and puffing, till the coach stopped in Bow Street, and then his Drusilla, having been deposited in a place of safety without seeing him, for he could not, with all his fervor, keep up with the coach. He attempted a parley with Bishop, about his share of the luggage, which had been carried off with the lady. Bishop told him if he would call at the public office in Bow Street next morning, he should have what belonged to him, and with this promise he departed apparently pretty comfortable. Bishop is a shrewd sort of a subject. His object in getting Horatio to call at the office was to give the chancery solicitors an opportunity of serving him with a copy of the injunction, and he completely succeeded, for Horatio was punctual in calling for his share of the luggage. He was shown into a private room, where neither the copy of the injunction nor his share of the luggage being ready. He amused himself with the volume of Coke upon Littleton. Instead of pacing the room with his arms folded across his breast to keep his heart down. Indeed, it was very evident that he considered himself pretty comfortable under the circumstances. By the by, notwithstanding the desperate adventure he had undertaken, he seemed of a very cool, phlegmatic temperament, and how Drusilla could have fallen so deeply in love with him we cannot imagine. For though he was nearly six feet high, and had a pleasing obliquity of vision. His nose was embossed with very angry-looking postuals, and his person was spare and uncouth. But de gustibus non es dispuntandum, a length, after he had poured over coke upon Littleton, and the statues at large, for about an hour and a half, the chancery solicitor arrived and served him with a copy of the injunction, and had it been a tavern bill affair. He could not have taken it more comfortably. He opened it, turned it about in different directions, looked at it both on the outside and the inside, played leisurely with the red tape that bound it, and then thrust it into his coat pocket. I have sent for your proportion of the luggage, sir, and it will be here directly, said Bishop. Horatio gave a nod, as much as to say, thank ye, and then he looked out at the weather. In a minute or two, his share of the luggage arrived. It consisted of a little bandbox and some unwashed shirts and cravats tied up in an old silk handkerchief. Horatio opened the handbox. There was a well-worn hat in it, two pairs of cotton stockings, and three pairs of gloves that, somehow or other, had lost the ends of the fingers. And there was, moreover, a very nice pair of yellow morocco slippers, nearly new. Horatio turned over these things some time, seemingly in a sort of brown study, and at last he remarked that there was a piece of Irish cloth which he did not see amongst them. Bishop said he understood the Irish cloth belonged to the lady. No, sir, said Horatio, it belongs to me. It was to make me some shirts, but it was of no great consequence. Let her keep it. As he said this, he sighed a little and Bishop, willing to console him for the loss of the, his love as much as possible, sent for the piece of Irish cloth, and delivered it to him. Horatio tied it up in his bundle, put the bundle under his arm, and balancing the bandbox on the palm of his hand, he stalked forth into the street, 
with the lord chancellor's injunction sticking out of his hinder pocket like the handle of a stewpan unfortunately for the pitcher however as he was crossing the street the wind which was then rather high blew the bandbox from his hand horatio attempted to catch it before it fell to the ground but instead of doing so he struck it up it went in the air off flew the lid and the old hat the stockings the fingerless gloves and the yellow morocco slippers were scattered on the muddy pavement horatio the luckless horatio gathered them up as quickly as the wind and the carts and the coaches would permit but while he was busied in getting them together the injunction dropped from his pocket at last he managed to cram them injunction at all into the bandbox and calling a coach he set off for the white horse cellar with the intention no doubt of returning to the calling of simples at home for he was manifestly a young man who like his namesake in the play could take fortune's buffets as thankfully as her rewards the lady in the course of the day was delivered to her friends in town and thus ended the loves of horatio and drusilla end of section thirteen